Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. I have spoken before about a time back in January of 1994 when an earthquake that lasted up to 20 seconds. Now, this 20-second earthquake hit the San Fernando Valley region of Los Angeles, California. And it did a lot of damage, about $20 billion in damages, and nearly 60 people died from this earthquake. And of course, much of the city lost power. Radio and TV stations were knocked off off the air. But that night, the most peculiar thing happened. The Griffith Observatory in Los Angeles began to receive very strange, very odd phone calls from citizens that were panicked, reporting a strange sight, an odd sight that they hadn't seen before in the sky. Some thought that maybe the silver cloud above them had actually caused this earthquake. And after some confusion, the director of the observatory figured out what was going on. He got to the bottom of it. The city lights were knocked out during the earthquake. And for the first time, maybe ever, the people living in Los Angeles, they looked up and they saw a dark sky and that scary, so scary, smoky, silver cloud being reported was just the Milky Way galaxy. How sad is that? Los Angeles has a population of about 12 and a half million people. Most of them, we would conclude, are probably not saved, and most of them probably believe in evolution, and most of them have no faith in God. And many of them have never been able to look up and, and see the handwriting of the Creator on the night sky. But it's not just them. Two-thirds of the population in the United States and one-fifth of the population in the world cannot even see the Milky Way. Now, our loving Creator put these things in the sky for a reason. It's there for a reason. He put the heavens, the stars, the moon, and the sun all there to testify of His creative love for mankind. So if you're an unbeliever, if you go outside at night, be careful. Be careful. Don't look up. Because if you look up and you're an unbeliever, you might just see a powerful witness of an all-sovereign creator. Dr. Seth Shostak, an astronomer with the SETI Institute, in fact, he is now the head of the SETI Institute, the group looking for intelligent life out in the stars. Now, he has a course that he teaches on the search for intelligent life in space. And in it, he points out that certain conditions, there must be certain conditions that must be met in order for life to exist in the universe. Listen to his list. This is his list. He says, first, the system's star or sun must not be a giant star. Why? Because they burn out too fast before life can fully develop. Second, the system star must not be a dwarf star because such a star locks in these close planets, meaning that one side of the planet forever faces its sun, and that's a bad thing. That's a very bad thing. In his words, resulting in horrific weather and unlikely venues for life. Yes, it's hard to live when you're boiling to death. 
You don't want the planet to freeze on one side and boil on the other. He says the system star cannot be a double star. Why? Because the unusual gravitational forces created by a double star system might not allow for stable planetary systems. Check. We have that. Ideally, he says, the planet would have a very large moon, which creates active tides. Check. We have that. The planet should have tectonic activity, which causes metals to be pushed up to the surface. Since metals are helpful, metals are very valuable to a technological civilization. Check. We have that. The planet should have a large planet further out in the solar system, which by its great gravitational pull will clean the inner solar system of deadly asteroids and comets. Good. We got that. We're good. And then he says the planet should not have a highly elliptical orbit, which is unsuitable for incubating life. And he adds for life to live on the surface of the planet, the planet must have an atmosphere. Now, Small planets, if it's too small, they lose their air. That's a problem. Very large planets tend to sport poisonous atmospheres. So you don't want the planet too big or too small. The planet needs to be about the size of, oh, what's that planet's name? Earth. And it just so happens, by chance, so they say, that we have every one of these conditions right here on this ball that we live on called Earth. I love the book of Genesis. I mean, I really love the book of Genesis because it confronts us with the love of the Creator long before we ever came into the world. And it forces us to appreciate the beautiful design of God's creation. Now, we've been studying creation and the biblical historical record found in the Word of God would you join me this morning in Genesis chapter 1, and we pick it up with verse 14, where it says, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Back on day one of creation, God created light to shine on the earth, a light given directly by God to shine on the earth before the sun was even created. Back on day one of creation, the earth was already rotating. Remember that the earth was already rotating. Light was divided from darkness. But now in verse 14, God's about to fill in the heavens. And he says, let there be lights in the firmament, expanse of the heavens. Now the day-night cycle was already there in day one. It was already there. But by the very order of creation, God shows us that he alone is the one who holds in his hand the light. And he alone is the one who is able to give us that light. On the first day, God said, let there be light. On the fourth day, what did he say? He said, let there be lights, plural. Or let there be light givers, you could say. The sun, moon, and stars were created after the earth. And they now take on the role of giving light to the earth. Now, lights could also be translated in the text as luminaries. 
The sun will now give the earth light and the moon will reflect that light. Now God assigns them to this office. God is assigning them to this office here in Genesis, teaching us something very important, Christians, teaching us that all of creation has a particular role to play in the order of our God. Now, there has been very little problem in church history in the past for men understanding that light was given to the earth on day one before the sun was even created. John Calvin understood it. He understood it just from reading the word of God from the text. He said the day night cycle was instituted from day one before the sun was created. And he wasn't alone. Martin Luther saw it. His writings show that he was very clear on this point, And he was emphatic on this point, that the sun, moon, and stars were created on day four. How about John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church? Same thing. He agreed. The first chapter of Genesis is not a problem if you stick to the word of God, if you stick to the text. If you take in outside evolutionary ideas, yeah, then you have a problem. And the earth, it was already rotating on day one, and there was light before the sun, which gives us further evidence of the authenticity of Genesis. Simply because this. Why do I say that? Simply because this. If this was written later by just men, if a bunch of guys got together and said, hey, I got an idea, Bob, let's write some stuff down. If they got together and made this up without the inspiration of God, this would be the last thing you'd write. You wouldn't write this because men write to their own understanding. We write what we know, not able to give insight into the divine understanding of God. To write of having a day and an earth with light without the sun in the sky would have been inconceivable in ancient times. And it also would have been very significant to the ancient cultures of the earth. Because many of them, so many of them, worship the sun in the sky as the source of all life. See, God is making it emphatically clear in the text that the sun came later. He's making it clear that the sun is secondary to God himself. It's secondary to God himself because God alone is the source of all life. See, God doesn't need the sun in order to create life. And early Christian writers understood this. Just to give you one example, Theophilus of Antioch in the second century, here's what he wrote. Look at this. He says, on, this is the second century. He says, on the fourth day, the luminaries came into existence. Since God has foreknowledge, he understood the nonsense of the foolish philosophers who are going to say that the things produced on earth come from the stars. So they might set God aside in order, therefore, that the truth might be demonstrated. Plants and seeds came into existence before the stars for what comes into existence later cannot cause what is prior to it. Do you see it? That's beautiful, isn't it? Catch that last sentence for what comes into existence later cannot cause what is prior to it. That is beautiful truth. We didn't come from the stars because the earth and plants on earth all came before the stars. Basil of Caesarea from the fourth century commenting on this same text, he said this, long quote, he said, heaven and earth 
were the first. After them was created light. The day had been distinguished from the night. Then it appeared the firmament and dry element. The water had been gathered into the reservoir assigned to it. The earth displayed its productions. It had caused many kinds of herbs to generate. Notice this next part. Watch what he says. However, the sun and moon did not yet exist in order that those who live in ignorance of God may not consider the sun as the origin and father of light or as the maker of all that grows out of the earth. That is why there was a fourth day, he says. And then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. See, I don't know about you, but I look at that and that builds my faith. That builds my faith. And I say that because, see, I look at men of old, men who went before us and they didn't have satellites and they didn't have space shuttles and rockets and all this cool stuff we got that we love so much. And they just looked at the word of God and they realized how powerful the written word of God is. See, these men of old, they had the same understanding No matter the day they lived in, no matter all the noise out there, no matter all the culture out there, no matter all the secular theories around them, they had the same understanding. Why? Because they had the same word of God teaching them about God's creation. Build your faith in the word of God, because without it, there's nothing but noise and confusion. The sun, the moon, and the stars took over for the light from day one of creation from verse three. But for what purpose? Well, verses 14 and 15. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Now the sun would now divide the day from night and seeing the stars in the heavens, seeing the Milky Way galaxy and all its beauty. It shows us not just the beauty of God's creation. That's not the end point. It's not just the beauty of God's creation, but it has always given mankind the ability to navigate at night by stars. Job 38, one of the oldest books we have in the Bible. It talks about the constellations as signs to navigate at night by. That's pretty awesome. Long before GPS, long before Garmin inReach, long before satellites, long before even the compass, men at sea and on land navigated by the stars at night. Many of us in this room still do this at times. I do all the time. Stars in the heavens are intended by the creator to help us navigate in the dark. They certainly declare the glory of God. And the stars in the heavens are also a sign that as long as they last, hear this point, God still has a people, Israel. Jeremiah 31, we don't think of this, but Jeremiah 31 says this. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinance of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves war. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord God, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. See, the stars in the heavens are even a sign of God's eternal love for his beloved nation, Israel. Lost people, lost people don't see the glory of God declared in the heavens and misguided Christians, that's what they are, misguided Christians who teach that God is done with the nation of Israel, miss that the heavens themselves serve as a powerful witness of God's plan for his people, Israel. Little girl went for a walk one night with her grandmother 
and the moon was out. You've seen these glorious nights where the moon's out in its fullest. The stars were bright. And the grandma, she's being a grandma. She's naming all the constellations and the stars. And to this, the little girl just responded. She said, Grandma, if the bottom side of heaven is this beautiful, just think of the other side and how wonderful the other side must be. Sometimes the simplistic understanding of a child can point out a profound truth. The lights in the sky are given for a reason, guys. Not for astrology, not for attempting to see your horoscope. That's never the intended meaning in Scripture. Astrology is absolutely antithetical to the teaching of Scripture. The light in the sky are for seasons, for days and years, as Scripture says. Seasons began in the creation week. That's an important teaching from Scripture. The seasons began in the creation week. And it tells us that the axis of the earth was already tilted at this point. Now, some have argued that the earth wasn't tilted yet until after the flood. But the word of God says here that there were seasons on day four. Seasons mean the earth was tilted. That's what it means. And the science models show us that if the earth would have been vertical, oh, you don't want a vertical earth. That would be bad. That would be very, very, very bad for life. If it's not a perfect 23 and a half degree angle, the temperature differences on Earth would have been powerful. They would have been extreme. But notice the word days in verse 14. Seasons, years, all markers of time. So what do you think days mean? Long period? No. Another marker that we use, right? As time, literal days. Of course, that's the context. The first three days were measured by the earth's rotation relative to the light that God created on day one. But now from day four on, they are measured according to the rotation relative to the sun. There were days before the sun because the earth was already rotating on its axis. But now with the created sun, there can be other things like years because it is the time of one revolution around the sun. The sun not just gives us light, it gives us heat, it gives us energy to the plants on earth. And the very idea that the sun was created on day four contradicts evolution. It contradicts the idea that God used billions of years to create because those theories all say that the sun arose before the earth. Our sun is perfect for our planet. It's a single star. Most of the time, stars exist in systems where there's two or three stars. So if you were on a planet in one of these systems, that's bad news. That's not good. The temperature extremes are incredible. Even our sun's position in the Milky Way galaxy, it's something we just take for granted, but we shouldn't because it's, its orbit is mostly circular, meaning that it doesn't go too close to the inner parts of the galaxy. Now, why is that so important? Well, that's important because that's where the supernovas are and the energetic star explosions that are more common. That's also a bad thing. Our sun has an orbit that is almost parallel to the galactic plane. Crossing this plane again would be very, very bad. It's an extremely stable star in the perfect orbit that we need it to be. Or if you want to consider the moon, it reflects the light that rules our nights. Man has always been fascinated by the moon. We even 
went there as a nation. I'm not arguing that with you guys, but we went there as a nation. <laughs> Evolutionists have come up with different theories of where it came from, but the Bible teaches us this simple truth that on day four, God created it. Created one day after the plants. Again, not something that fits in with billions and billions of years. And it's important. Consider how important it is for us. It reflects the sun's light to us, even when the sun is on the other side of the earth. It's amazing. But the amount it reflects depends on the moon's surface. So thank God that we have a moon that is so big, that is so large. Our moon is more than a quarter of the diameter of the earth. That is not typical for moons. And if our moon was much smaller, it wouldn't have enough gravity to maintain its shape. It would not look the same. And the moon orbits the earth in a 29 and a half day cycle, important so that calendars can be made and people could plant their crops at the best times of the year. And later in the Pentateuch, God will create for the nation of Israel a calendar, a calendar of religious worship, a religious worship calendar that would be regulated by the movement of the earth around the sun and the movement of the moon. I find this fascinating. The earth's gravity keeps the moon in orbit. Now, this is a huge gravitational force. If it wasn't for this gravity, we're going to need a cable. We're going to need a very large cable. You would need a steel cable that is not just a couple miles thick. It would have to be 531 miles thick to keep the moon from flying out into space. But it's all kept in place by gravity. The moon exerts the same force on Earth, but the force is somewhat higher on the part of the Earth nearest the moon. So the water bulges towards it. That's how we get those high tides. And on the part farthest from the moon, what happens? Well, the water flows away from the moon, which makes another high tide on the opposite side of the Earth. And in between, what happens? Well, the water levels drop, and then you have low tide. And as the moon orbits the earth, there's a cycle of two low tides and two high tides every 25 hours. And these tides don't take them for granted neither. They're very important to life because they keep the oceans not stagnant, but circulating. God created this moon, the sun and the stars all on day four, but he gives us the detail starting in verse 16, where he says, then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Interesting. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and divide the light from the darkness. And God saw. He saw that it was good. I want you to know. I want you to notice here in the text the precision, the absolute beautiful precision in which Moses recorded God's creation. Watch what Moses does here. This is great. Moses declared that God made two great lights, the greater light for the day and the lesser light to rule the night. But let's ask this question. How did Moses know that the sun was bigger than the moon? Now, we take that for granted. But how did Moses know that the sun was bigger than the moon? Because a large harvest moon hovering over the skyline might make you just think the opposite. It could lead anyone to say, I've never seen the sun look that big. I've never seen that. See, many ancient people believed the moon was greater than the sun. 
but they accounted for its lack of heat and light by assuming it was much further away. Moses didn't make that mistake. He said the sun was bigger than the moon, and boy, was he right. Boy, was he right. The sun is so much bigger, it could contain six million of our moons. That's bigger. Moses could easily have made another mistake. Instead of saying two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, he could have said the greatest light. He could have said that because many ancient people worshipped the sun as the great objects in the heavens, didn't they? He could have said the greatest light. He didn't. But this would have been a huge mistake because now we know that our sun is not the greatest object in the sky. It's not because there are stars that are much larger. Just consider the star Antares. It is so large, they say, that it could swallow up 64 million suns the size of ours. That's large. And then look at the end of verse 16. He just says, and he made the stars also. He made the stars also. Just five words in English. Just five simple words in our English translations. What an amazing perspective of truth. What an amazing perspective of truth. You know, the Bible takes 50-some chapters to discuss the construction and significance of the tabernacle. But five words about the creation of the stars. Why? Clearly written from a different perspective than ours. And the answer is because the Bible is a handbook of redemption. That is why the stars were nothing for God to create. He only had to speak, but to redeem a people for himself, he had to do something much more. He had to suffer. That is the perspective of the Bible. See, had man written the Bible on his own apart from God, it would have looked completely different. Chapter after chapter after chapter would have been written about the stars, about the creation, and less about the creator himself. But God is more interested in people and more interested in souls than stars. In the 17th century, mathematician Isaac Newton, he had a small mechanical replica of our solar system made. And at its center, he was trying to represent this, that he had a large golden ball representing the sun. And then revolving around it were smaller spheres attached at the ends of rods of different lengths. And they represented the planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, all the other planets. And they were geared together by cogs and belts. I mean, this is primitive at that time, of course. And to make them move around, he had these belts and cogs going so they would move around the sun in perfect harmony and orbit. And one day, Newton was sitting there and he was studying the model he had made. And a friend stopped over. A friend who did not believe in God, who did not believe in a creator. And looking at the device that Newton had built, completely enthralled at the device that made the planets move around in, in, in the orbits, the man said to him, my Newton, what an exquisite thing. Who made it for you? Without looking up, Newton just said, nobody. His friend asked, that's right. Newton responded, I said, nobody. All these balls and cogs and belts and gears just happened to come together and wonder by wonder of chance they began revolving in their set orbits with perfect 
timing. Well, the friend got the point. Christian, I hope you get the point. Because the existence of Newton's machine presupposed a maker and how much more the earth and its perfectly ordered system. The statistical improbability of a cosmic machine coming together by chance is a crushing defeat for evolutionists. Noting the order and design of our universe, Johannes Kepler, the founder of modern chemistry, the guy who discovered the three planetary laws of motion, the guy who first came up with the term satellite, he said that the undevout astronomer is mad. I agree, self-deceived and prideful. This greater light that rules the day our sun, it's actually white, it's not yellow. A lot of people think it's yellow, but that's why snow, clouds, and the moon are all white and not yellow. It's because it's white. Now the sun can, of course, look yellow at a sunset because the atmosphere scatters the blue light, making it look yellow. Evolutionists believe that our sun formed when a dust cloud or a nebula collapsed. But that is really simple to prove wrong. That is really easy to prove wrong. Because what happens when an ice skater pulls their arms in? They spin faster, right? They spin faster. Physicists call this the law of conservation of angular momentum. When the skaters pull in their arms, the distance from the center decreases, so they spin faster. Otherwise, the angular momentum would not be constant. It's science. Same thing would have happened with the formation of our sun if it was just a nebula collapsing in space. The sun would have begun to spin very, very, very fast. But see, here's the problem. Our sun doesn't. Our sun doesn't spin that fast. It actually spins very slowly while the planets move around the sun. And that's a big problem for evolutionists. God made the greater light to rule the day. God made the lesser light to rule the night. The moon looks white to us because of the white light of the sun, but it's actually mostly black. Most people don't know that. It's mostly black because the surface is covered with basalt. Evolutionists have a hard time explaining where it came from. They, they have a hard time. Some think that the earth was capturing the moon, but this doesn't work because the orbit is too much of a circle. George Darwin, the son of Charles, he had a great idea. He, he, and I mean that sarcastically, he came up with this idea that a chunk of the earth spun off and made the moon. But see, that's not likely because the gravitational forces that would have been involved in something like that mean any chunk breaking off of the earth would have been completely just shattered. Then for about three decades, they went to the belief that a giant impact, and you still see this in some of the textbooks today, a giant impact, two to three times the mass of the planet Mars, hit the Earth and then created the moon. Well, they're still struggling. They don't know. They don't know where it came from. Don't let them intimidate you. The only reason evolutionists are so committed to their work is because they do not want to be held accountable to a creator. God made the stars of all shapes and of all sizes. The most massive star that we know about has got a great name. It's called R136A1. It's a violent star. It's a blue star. 
with a surface temperature of over 50,000 K, nine times hotter than the sun itself, our sun. It's 265 times more massive than our sun and shines 8.7 million times brighter. God spoke that into existence. Or consider the red hypergiant NML Cygni with a radius 1,650 times the radius of the sun. It is 30 times the mass of our sun and 300,000 times brighter. God spoke this all into existence. He made some blue. He made some red. He made some white. He made some small. He made some big. But he created them all by the spoken word. Even better is how many he created. I love this. I've mentioned before that the universe, just what we can see, this is just what we can observe, has a radius of 46 billion light years. Okay, that's big. That's big. And just an estimation is that the universe contains more stars than we could ever count. The number is 10 to the 24th power. But isn't this what the Word of God already told us long ago, so long ago? Genesis 15, 5, God speaking to Abraham. Then he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so you shall your descendants be. Or over in Jeremiah 33, 22, it says, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered, nor the sand of the sea measured, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. See, it just took science a long, long time to catch up with the Bible. That's what happened. Before Galileo could use his telescope to look up, astronomers could only see about 3,000 stars on each hemisphere. Galileo improved that. He could see about 30,000. That's huge. Modern telescopes tell us we can't even count them all. Our creator spoke them into place. And unlike the moon and the sun, they have no ruling function over us, meaning they are just there for God's glory. And so, yes, we can study them. And yes, they are impressive. But do not get too caught up in the creation. Get caught up in the creator himself. Deuteronomy 4.19 actually warns us about this. It says this. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Evolutionists will tell you that the first stars formed from clouds of gas that collapsed. But these clouds are too hot and too diffuse to collapse. This is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's a, an evolutionist. He's an astrophysicist. He's a very smart man. He's also a committed atheist. He's in more of an anti-theist is what he, he calls himself. Take a look at his own words. This is what he says. Read this with me. He says, not all gas clouds in the Milky Way can form stars at all times. More often than not, the cloud is confused about what to do next. Actually, astrophysicists are the confused ones here. We know the cloud wants to collapse under its own weight to make one or more stars, but rotation as well as turbulent motion within the cloud works against that fate. So too does the ordinary gas pressure you learned about in high school chemistry class. And then a little bit further on, he admits this. He says, the scary part is that if none of us knew in advance that stars exist, 
Frontline research would offer plenty of convincing reasons for why stars could never form. Stunning admission, but it's not scary to me. Why? Because I have Genesis chapter 1. I have Genesis chapter 1. I have a God who created it. See, evolutionists look up and think that life could have evolved out there, but the Bible tells us that God didn't do that. God created life here, that he gave mankind dominion over creation. That's important. It rules out the idea that a more advanced, you might want to listen to this if you're really into sci-fi, okay? It rules out the idea that a more advanced alien could come and ever wipe us out or conquer us. See, when Adam fell, all of creation was cursed, which included alien worlds. All of creation was cursed. But God the Father sent his only begotten son to die once for our sins. God the Son took on human flesh, forever united with us as our kinsman redeemer, a fellow descendant of Adam. See, the incarnation of Christ is unique to our planet, to earth. So even if you tried to say that God had intelligent life on another planet, you'd have to say that they were never given dominion over creation like man. They are no threat because it is man that has dominion over creation and Christ never died for their sins. And when God creates a new heaven and new earth, those worlds will be done away with. Meaning this, it will not shake my faith if NASA reports a microbe or some small bacteria in space. That won't bother me one bit. But I can know with confidence that I don't need Will Smith to save me from space aliens because according to the word of God, we're not going to be invaded by aliens from outer space. And God again calls the creation good. And verse 19 tells us this. It says, so the evening and morning were the fourth day. In the 1970s, there was a decision that was made by NASA that they would send up two probes, Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. Now, Voyager 1 was launched in September of 1977. And once it got into space and all the rockets shut down, it began to move through space under its own inertia. And it passed by Saturn and it catapulted a little faster and then passed Jupiter and then a little faster. And it slingshots a little faster and a little faster. And it passes all the planets, and it takes pictures of them all. It passes Neptune, it passes Pluto, poor Pluto. Neptune is about 2.7 billion miles away. But once it got out of our solar system, they decided to turn off the cameras. Why? Because there's nothing in between the solar systems to take pictures of. You don't waste film and power on nothing. Still moving at a speed of about 11 miles per second. That's fast. 11 miles per second. On Voyager 1, there's a golden record. You've probably read about this. That if you turned it on, you would hear sounds of Earth and a greeting in 55 languages. But how, how is anybody ever going to hear this? Because do you know how long it's going to take for Voyager 1 to get to the next solar system? 40,000 years. God spoke that solar system into existence. See, our next closest star is Alpha Centauri. It's 4.3 light years away. See, God made these stars. He spoke them into existence. And when the Bible says that God made the stars along with the sun and the moon, it says nothing about man, but it says something about his immense power and creative ability. 
Light travels at 186,000 miles a second. Do you know how many miles that is a year? That's six trillion miles in one year. So let's say this morning your alarm clock went off at 7 a.m. because you get up early for church, okay? So let's say this morning your alarm clock goes off at 7 a.m. A ray of light passed by the earth from the sun. As you sat down to your morning coffee, let's say at 7.43 a.m., that light beam had just passed Jupiter. And by the end of the week, that light will be leaving our solar system, leaving our solar system completely. But it would be another four years before this beam of light reached the next nearest star, and close to 30,000 years before it will reach the center of our galaxy that's at about six trillion miles a year. And once it leaves the Milky Way, it will have left behind 100, about 100 billion stars. But that's not even to the known edge of the universe, because to get there would take about 20 billion years of travel at 6 trillion miles a year, leaving behind galaxy after galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. At least about 200 billion galaxies. Some say as many as 10 trillion galaxies. I can't even understand the math. Each with about 100 billion stars in them. And this is thought to be a gross underestimation. Here's what I know. David said this in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Job 26, 14, speaking of the heavens. Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways, and how small a whisper we hear of him, but the thunder of his power. Who can understand? See, Genesis explains all of this by saying, and God created the stars. Five English words, and God created the stars. See, what I want you to know this morning is this, Christians, is that no matter what is going on in your life, the challenges, the stress, the worry, the fear. Same God that made those stars. He cares for you. He cares for you. He knows you, Christian, by name. He sees you. He hears your prayers. And he loves you. So don't just look up and celebrate the stars. Look up to the God who made you. Look up to him and worship him and serve him. Every created man and every created woman longs to be reunited with the creator. His word is his story of what he did for you and how you can live in peace and fellowship with him all the days of your life. No star was put into place by accident. And yet in the enormity of these giants, the most complex and beautiful image of God is not found in them or in the galaxies they inhabit. Where is his image found? In you. In you. See, the love of God that he shows us the God alone bridges the distance between him and us, enabling us to see this world through the cross of Calvary. Because when I get a picture of how big my God is, then I recognize that he does understand everything in my life I'm going through, all the complex situations of life. He understands my life, every challenge I face, and yet he still offers me an abundant life in him, not just eternal life. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying an abundant life in him as a believer in Jesus Christ. 
And this is what happens when I come to him and say, God, I want you to hold me together. I want you to hold my life together the same way that you hold this universe together. God, I want you to orchestrate my life just like you orchestrate the path of the sun and the stars. You see, I wonder sometimes how many opportunities in life that we have missed because our faith got weak and we stopped trusting him. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't just throw away the ticket and start jumping off. What do you do? You sit still and you trust the engineer. And that's the message. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Ephesians 2, 10, you know, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, God makes appointments with our disappointments, but I will tell you, Christian, that there is no greater discovery than seeing God as the author of your destiny. I think the reason that sometimes we have this false sense that God is far away is because that's where we put him in our faith. We put him far away. We keep him at a distance. And then when we need him, we call him up and we call on him in prayer and wonder where he is. But he's exactly where we left him. Still sovereign, still in control, still waiting for us to trust him by faith. And so we end this morning our time of study with Psalm 147. Read it with me. It's beautiful. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord, and mighty in power, his understanding is infinite. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.